In the scriptures, we learn in the Old Testament that the Sabbath was, was a command, was given to, to God's people as a distinctive mark. In Exodus, God told the children of Israel that the Sabbath set them apart from the nations. It was given to them as one of the Ten Commandments to be a blessing for them. And if you remember, they were taken out of slavery. They lived, they lived in forced servitude in Egypt for over 400 years. And now Mount Sinai, God said he was giving them a day off every week. They were, they were not to work one day out of seven. They were given a day of rest. And you can imagine for them what a blessing that would have been after 400 years of forced slavery. They, they were given now this rest every week. But this day, the Sabbath, was to be a day of worship. It was to set them apart from the nations. When their neighbors saw them pausing their work for one day a week to worship God, it showed that they were different. But as the story goes through the Old Testament, they didn't do a very good job at keeping the Sabbath. In fact, they stunk at it. And, and in so doing, they stunk at worshiping God. And the Old Testament prophets warned them again and again until Jeremiah tells them that God was going to take them into exile for 70 years because they forgot about him. They forgot about the, the Sabbath. They ignored God and his commandments. And then after 70 years, when they came out of exile, they're to determine that they're not going to break the Sabbath anymore, along with other commandments of God. And so the rabbis, their, their scribes, their, their lay leaders then begin to build laws around God's law to protect them from breaking any commands. But in so doing, they're going above the line of God's word. They didn't keep the line. Does that sound familiar to anyone? We had about 30 students this last Thursday, men and women, join us for the Simeon Trust workshop, 30 of us, and we talked about this, right? Keeping the line. They didn't. They added to it. They built another fence around the law, adding more to the law. They went above it than what God had originally attended. And so we come now to the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus has been teaching and healing people, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers, are listening in, and they're upset with Jesus because he isn't following their rules, what they added to, this extra barrier. And these are the spiritual gurus of the day, and Jesus isn't playing by their rules. All they wanted to do was obey the law, but in zeal, they continue to break the law and ignore the law. And in so doing, they forget about people. They forget about image bearers. They only just see words on a page. And Jesus steps into their man-made laws, and he's squashing their dreams of a neat religion so that they could see salvation in him. So in this passage this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. We see two hands, the hands of the disciples as they take grain on the Sabbath and the hand of a man who is to be healed on the Sabbath. So nothing fancy for my outline, a hand of grain and a hand of mercy. And here's the main idea, and I took this right from Mark's gospel. The main idea is this. Jesus teaches that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus teaches that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority to interpret the divine intention behind the Sabbath. He makes the Sabbath subordinate to him, and in the process, he teaches us what mercy looks like in this passage. So look at the first point, hand of grain in verse one. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, 
Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The law of God directed you to rest from your work one day in seven. That was a blessing. But the religious leaders had fenced the law with a stack of specific regulations to be carefully done. There were 39 type of activities that you, that you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping grain, which is what they're accusing them here in these verses. The disciples' violation does not have to do with taking the grain, but the fact that they were rubbing their hands, their fingers together, which was considered work by the Pharisees. These Pharisees must have talked to my kids because if I ever asked them to pick up a toy, they just complained that it's work. They have developed traditions that undermine the spirit of the law, the Sabbath. And instead of a time that was set aside for celebration and rest and contemplation of the riches and the majesty of God, it had become human oppression. And Jesus is going to put a stop to it. Jesus has used uses David's example to teach them about their Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted for this primary reason, among others, to teach men to cease one day a week from serving themselves and to devote themselves fully to the service of God. Them plucking grain was done in his service. It was, it was perfectly proper to do it even on the Sabbath. And he shares with them the story from 1 Samuel 21, when David is running from Saul who has this murderous envy in his heart to end David. And David and his band of soldiers who were starving went to the priest at Nob, and, and he said, do you have any food that you can give me? And the priest said, you know, I, I don't have any food here. The only food that I have is the showbread. It's the bread of presence that sits before the Lord. And, and only the priests are allowed to take the showbread. Lay people like you, David, you, you can't eat this. And David said to the priest, but, but me and my men are starving and do you know what the priest is? He gave them the showbread. That's the, the ceremonial law that said that the showbread is only for the priest was trumped by the moral necessity of obeying the second great commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And so when the ceremonial law comes into contest with the obedience to God and his moral law to love neighbor, the ceremonial law is trumped. And here is Jesus' disciples. And what are they doing on the Sabbath day? They're traveling from town to town, preaching the gospel, teaching God's word, turning people from themselves back to God, ministering to the poor, ministering to the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself. There was no law broken as far as God was concerned. Well, my thought was this week, my question, how did the Pharisees even know a few men walking in the green fields rubbed a little green in their hands? Like, seriously, are they, they're all up in their business. They're stalking Jesus and his men. They're spying on him. They're looking for ways to trap him. And you know you're being a Pharisee when you start inspecting green. And Jesus is doing works of healing. He's, and the Pharisees are all bent out of shape because they're eating a little something as they're working. This isn't an elaborate meal. You, you understand that they didn't sit down to this. They, they passed through the grain fields and they picked off some heads of grain and they rubbed them between their fingers. It, was, it, it wasn't terribly tasty, but it would have given them some substance. 
The Pharisees don't care a whit about the ministry that Jesus and his disciples are doing. They only care that they violated some traditional interpretation of theirs of how you're supposed to keep the Sabbath. And Jesus puts the Pharisees and the scribes in a position where they must either condemn David, which would be an unpopular position, or admit that the application of the law must be tempered by urgent necessity. And the point is clear. The law was never intended to keep hungry people from food. And these teachers are elevating law over people, and in so doing, they're becoming hard towards others, indifferent towards the needs of people. And the first step in pursuit of religion is to make rules more important than God themselves. And Jesus isn't going to have any part of this. He's going to call him on it. And he says in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that statement, that, that, that statement he says rocks them. Jesus is greater than their man-made law. He will not submit under their law. He is Lord over the true law of God. And, and I got to tell you, these are, this is one moment of, of many where I, w- I wish that Luke would have written down for us the response from these Pharisees and the response on what he said. Jesus is to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And you understand what he's saying, right? Jesus is saying, I created the Sabbath. The Sabbath is my day. The Sabbath is about me. I'm the boss of the Sabbath. I'm the master of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What I say goes in the Sabbath, goes in the Sabbath. What I say doesn't go in the Sabbath, doesn't go in the Sabbath. You don't make the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. So, so they need to listen to him. And I would have loved to pay good money to see the faces of the Pharisees as, as they hear Jesus say this. Who is the Lord of creation? Who is the Lord of Sabbath? But God himself. And who is saying they're God right now? Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. And when the, when the scribes and Pharisees get legalistic about the Sabbath, they enslave men to the Sabbath as if the Sabbath were the greatest thing. And, and Mark records this scene and adds, this is the main point of the, the sermon this morning, Jesus teaches that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees serve the law, but the law was meant to serve them. The law was even there to protect them from overwork and from the idolatry of work. It was there to protect them from the routine of that regularly forgets God by reminding them of a full day at least that God is their God and they are his people. And they've twisted it. They've ruined it. How kind it is to God to dedicate an entire day for them to do nothing but to know him, to meet with him, to enjoy him, to find ourselves refreshed in him. And yet they've turned it inward. They made it about themselves. And Jesus' strong Christological statement asserts that Jesus is superior to the Sabbath laws and can determine where, when, and how they apply. It's, it's as if, maybe this illustration helps, it's if a tourist is looking around a beautiful home and comes to across a door that's marked private, and he must respect the, the homeowner's uh, warning to not go in this. But if the owner's son 
comes out and invites him inside for dinner, the tourist is not disregarding the owner's prohibition by following the owner's son through the door marked private. And the Pharisees, they do not realize who they're talking to. This was the unique one. This is no mere moral man. He is the son of God. He's the owner of the Sabbath. And Jesus argues that he's the authoritative representative of the new way, and he has authority over the understanding and the administration of the Sabbath. And for the church, for, for us, that means that Jesus Christ, his words, his actions determine the church's understanding of the Sabbath. The church is not then bound by the Sabbath. Rather, we are bound to Christ who interprets the Sabbath for the church. Or we're not bound by the Sabbath in the same way that they were. The primary change now is that the day in which we celebrate because now our Sabbath as Christians is the first day of the week. And Christians have historically called this the Lord's Day. So we say in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week when they gathered together. And then 1 Corinthians 16, 2. This is because Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And God has sanctified a new day, properly calling it the Lord's Day. You can see Revelation 1, 10 to reaffirm this. And the Old Testament Sabbath was the last day of the week. And on that day, they looked forward to the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And we have already begun to enter the rest. And so we begin our week by acknowledging his lordship over our life. So you need to see why it's important to gather for worship on Sundays. This isn't a new law that you need to obey. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we should gather and rejoice in his conquering the grave. That's why today, like every other Sunday, is Resurrection Sunday. So when I say, he has risen, you say, every Sunday, we we glory in this. We remind ourselves of this. We rejoice in our risen Savior. And so, friends, neglecting the Lord's Day can and will bring harm to your life. We harm ourselves when we have, have busied ourselves so much with the world's pursuits or when we bring work home and neglect the time to gather and worship. The best thing is that on Sunday we gather with God's people and set aside our work and we focus on him, we worship him. The Sabbath was a gift to Israel, just as the Lord's Day is a gift to the church. And Jesus, the lawgiver, had not come to demand that they obey the law either. This is what makes the Pharisees, um, their religion, so revolting to God. See, Pharisees demand we keep the law even when the lawgiver did not demand for the righteousness. We've already failed. All of us have failed at keeping the law. And the law requires that we die for that failure. But Jesus has come to perfectly fulfill the law and to pay the penalty the law requires. Every demand God places on us, Jesus Christ has fulfilled, even keeping the Sabbath. That's why Jesus Christ lives a perfect life in obedience to God, to offer to God the righteousness that we don't have. And that's why Jesus voluntarily and lovingly sacrifices himself on the cross to pay the penalty of death, to suffer God's wrath in our place. And so, friends, all who believe in Jesus, stop trying to work your way to God and to earn his love and, 
We need to turn from our hopes of self-righteousness in our work and finally enter into this true rest, an unending Sabbath based in faith in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees here, they, they just don't understand who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And they want to protect their way of life. They want to protect their, their man-made traditions. And they're not done with their pursuit of Jesus. So that was the hand of grain, second, and last, the hand of mercy. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So the Pharisees had heard of Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, but they wanted to see it for themselves. And this devilish attitude hits its breaking point here as Jesus is teaching the synagogue on the Sabbath. Opposition comes to Jesus not from sinners outside of the church, but from inside of the church on the day that they're gathered to worship. Luke says the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. If your goal to come to church is to trap a leader or a pastor, then you are as sinister as the Pharisees are. There was provision in law and their law that allowed a rabbi to give medical attention to someone only in a life-threatening situation. Here's what it says. Whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, healing was a form of working. The Bible didn't teach that. Their tradition did. Friends, traditions bring burden. But the Word of God brings life. For them, mercy would have to wait for another day. These Pharisees were so concerned about keeping their man-made traditions intact that they would not even lift a finger to help someone in need. They're essentially saying, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you have to wait till tomorrow. This isn't a day for healing, it's only for worshiping. And, and they, they built their worship in a way that eliminated mercy. And Jesus knows this, either by the inspiration of the Spirit or his, his sonship. He, he knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. He's, he knows what's going on, and he brings the man up front, in front of them all. And he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Jesus wanted them to see that by refusing to, good, to, do, to do good on the Sabbath, they were actually causing harm. Not only was it not wrong to help this man, but it was wrong to not help this man. Jesus was not simply trying to show the Pharisees that their view of the Sabbath was inadequate. He's also saying it was immoral. In this case, failing to act was morally equivalent to destroying someone's life. 
And God in his great compassion had instituted the Sabbath so that men's hands might rest and regain, regain strength for further work, not so that it would prolong their disability to do any work at all. He's, he's saying the Sabbath was a perfectly appropriate time to do acts of mercy, to minister to those with physical needs as well as those who have spiritual needs. And they completely missed the tenderness of Jesus reaching out to heal this man. Let me put it this way. To fail to do good or save life when you can is in fact to do harm and destroy life. There is no neutrality in the worship that Jesus teaches and models for us. We cannot pretend to worship Jesus if we refuse to help those in need. Who is it? Who is it around us that we ignore as we travel to church each week to worship? What lives are being destroyed around us as we come to, to gather? How does God view us when we ignore the needs of others? In Mark's gospel, it says, he looked around at them. This is after he brings up the man. He says, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Why does Jesus become angry with the religious leaders? It's because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken. And to heal this man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. But these men cannot see another human in front of them. All they see all they're concerned with is their traditions. And they ignore the person. The man made in the image of God. And they seek only to protect their freedoms. Jesus shows us in, in this, these encounters that there are two radically different spiritual paradigms. Imagine two people both trying to obey the law of God, yet they operate from these two opposing paradigms. Both want to keep the Sabbath, but in one case, the obedience is a burden. It's an enslavement. While the other, it's a delight. It's a gift. And how can that be? Well, for one, it's religion. And the other is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which begins and ends with news, good news. And these have two different endings. All world religions are based upon good works, on knowing all of the, the right things and doing the good things. There's a code of conduct and how you should dress and what you should do and how you should speak. And if you don't line up with these things in every way, then you're out. There's a legalistic nature in these. If I perform, if I obey, then I'm accepted. That's what they preach. But the gospel is diametrically opposed to that. We are fully accepted in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we obey. There are even Christians, and I've talked to a few of you, who live your lives out of fear for not doing or saying the right thing all the time and you worry that God is, is up in heaven just waiting to pounce on you. 
And they are the most miserable people of all. Because they know enough about God to feel guilty. But they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. And how miserable that must be to live. See, in religion, the purpose of obeying the law is to assure you that you are all right with God. And so when you come to the law, you're only interested in the details. You want, you want to know exactly what you must do. You need to know exactly how to push the right buttons to make God happy. And, and you don't gravitate toward the seeking out the intent of the law. Rather, you, you tend to, to write into the law all sorts of details of observance so you can assure yourself, so you can feel safe finally that you're obeying the law, that, that God somehow will be pleased with you. But for the Christian... The law instead should show us ourselves and push us into Jesus Christ who has fulfilled every part of the law on our behalf. The law brings us to Christ, not away. And so as Christians now, we don't study the Bible to find out how we earn God's love and acceptance, but we read and study the Bible to find out how we can love our Savior and know him. You want to learn about him and how he thinks and how he acts towards his creation. It's no longer duty, it's, it's love. And we pray not to, to please someone else, not to please elders and pastors, but you pray to know the Savior. Because salvation changes us. But these Pharisees do not understand Jesus and why he came. Luke ends in verse 11, he says, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. And how sad it is to read these words. And my initial reaction, so it's not okay for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay for you to plot on how to kill him on the Sabbath. It's amazing that these men were careful about keeping the Sabbath, but it didn't cause them the slightest tinge of conscience that they were trying to use God's commandments to kill a man. And worse than that, the man that they wanted to kill was God in the flesh. They completely missed Jesus. Men who had spent their entire life in the scriptures miss the point of the scriptures. And if that doesn't open your eyes and consider yourself, then I don't know what will. And for some, even today, tradition trumps scripture. The way we've always done it is what matters most, even if you destroy people in the process. And we need to consider our ways. Do we line up with the Bible? Well, as I end, I want to come back to this idea that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The word Sabbath means a deep rest, a deep peace. It's near to the word shalom, a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. And when Jesus says to us in verse 5 that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he's meaning that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of deep rest we so desperately need. He has come to completely change the way we rest. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste of the deep divine rest we need. And Jesus, my friend, is the source of that rest. 
You ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? I think I've mentioned this before, but it's about Eric Lydell, who is a Christian and refused to run on the Sabbath. In the movie, it talks about the competition of him and Harold Abrams, and the two were running for two different reasons. Abrams was trying to prove himself by running. There's a line in the movie where, right before this race is about to happen, and he talks about the event, and he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. And I just wonder, how many of you feel the same way this morning? In whatever endeavors you are in right now. To the moms out there feeling pressure, either from people or your parents, or schools, or friends, and you feel the weight pushing down on you, and you say a similar thing, I've got nine months to justify my existence as a mom. And you feel the weight of teaching your kids, and you feel it's all on you. Or men who work every day and go off to supply for your family, trying to Climb the ladder at work, trying to, to work your best each and every week. And you do the same thing. You think the same way. I've, I've got to justify my existence. I have to show them I can do this. Or students striving to get the best grades, trying to finish high school so that you can do well enough to get that, that scholarship that you need. And you work or in college, or in master's degree, and you're, you're working, you're putting all this effort into a degree, and you find yourselves thinking the same way. I've got only these few months, and I have to justify my existence. I have to do this well to prove myself to others. Or the retired person who's worked for decades so you raised your kids, they're, they're grown and gone, and now retirement is upon you. And as your mind runs to those same thoughts that you've battled all those years of working and raising kids and supplying a home, and you now think, I just I have to justify my existence by doing more and proving that I'm worth having around for a few more years. See, in the movie, The Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell said he wanted to run to simply please his Lord. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. But Harold Abrams was weary even when he rested. But Eric Liddell was rested even when he was running. Why? Because underneath our work is work that we really need to rest from. It's the work of self-justification. It's the work that often takes us into religion, trying to find our refuge in that instead of Jesus Christ. Most of us work and work and work trying to prove ourselves to others and to God that we're good and worthy to have around. And that work is never completed unless we rest in the gospel. 
And on the cross, Jesus was saying that your work that is underneath your work, that thing that truly makes you weary, that desire to prove yourself, to show others that you are good enough, that work is finished now because of Jesus Christ. He has lived the life you should have lived, and he's died the death that you should have died. And if you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied in you. And you can be satisfied in your life. And you can truly rest. You know, the Christian life, from one vantage point, is this incredibly long journey of letting go of our prideful assumption of what we believe about God and learning about him from the scriptures and and allowing the Bible to, to wash over us every week and replacing our assumptions with God's own insistence on who he is. And this takes work, very hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, as he tells us in Exodus 34. And that he's long-suffering with us. See, Adam and Eve's fall in the garden not only sent us into condemnation and exile, but it, it, it ingrained our minds with dark thoughts about God himself. And the only rescue is for us to dwell in the gospel day after day, moment after moment. And maybe, friend, Satan's greatest victory in your life is not the sin in which you indulge in, but the dark thoughts about God's very own heart towards you that cause you to live in coldness and coolness towards him. Perhaps you can't find rest because you've convinced yourself that your sin is too great and God is too angry with you. But friends, God isn't like you. Dane Ortland, in my favorite book this year, Gentle and Lowly, says, even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for, your, for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created, and that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. But we need to take those dark miseries to him. And what good news this is, friends. And we should bring ourselves to God. So I'll keep saying it. We need to keep running to Jesus. And don't dwell on the erring thoughts of God. Run to him. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And as we'll sing in a moment, he is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we 
continue to live in a world that thinks wrong, that thinks wrong about you. And we need your help to think rightly about you. God, we so desperately need to be in your word. Reading more of you and how you relate to us. We thank you for the reminder this morning that we can rest in you. And we praise you for the opportunity that we have to gather on Sundays to worship with your people. But Father, help us to worship you as we leave this place. May we not forget those that surround us who need your mercy. Father, may we be conduits of grace, not cul-de-sacs. May we love you with all that we do, all that we say, and all that we think as we leave this place. For your honor and glory alone we pray. Amen.